Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Our nation's past can make some people uncomfortable. It's one reason why, whether people admit it or not, there are ongoing attempts to whitewash history or present it in a different and not completely accurate light. This is particularly true when it comes to race, racism, and our country's troubled history in dealing with those things. But our guest today, Charlatan Greg Gerald, has tackled these uncomfortable issues head-on in a new book. In fact, you may be uncomfortable with the title of his book, Our Trespasses, White Churches, and the Taking of American Neighborhoods. It's an exploration of the path we've taken from the time of slavery through Reconstruction and Jim Crow on to urban renewal to today, asking uncomfortable questions that bring history to life. You can't fix the problems of the present without examining the past. You can't create a future that is just that is just without confronting the injustices we and our ancestors lived through. Greg Gerald explores all of this through the story of two families in Charlotte using our city to examine this history and its connection to religion, and he joins us for the hour. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Glad to be here. As I told you, your book reads like a novel. It is difficult to stop. It's kind of a page-turner, and I didn't expect that, given the fact that it is nonfiction. Uh, it, it's really well done. Thank you. Con- thank, congratulations. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Before we talk about the book, you are not just an author, but you are a cultural organizer uh, with the QC Family Tree in the Enderly Park neighborhood, working with words and music to impact housing and neighborhood justice issues. How does that work? So QC Family Tree has been over in the Enderly Park neighborhood uh, since 2005, so for almost 20 years. Uh, We do some affordable housing work here. Uh, Part of that is is as a housing provider. Part of that is uh, in organizing both for better policy, also organizing uh, groups like the Westside Community Land Trust that we help to give birth to here. Uh, And so we're we're using stories, and that's what this book is, a story that is about housing and the way that our city has developed uh, into the shape that it's in. Uh, and and trying to take those words uh, and art and to help bend the story of Charlotte so that we have a more just future rather than something with the past. You also write about theology and history not out, in places outside of your book. And I believe I'm right, right in saying this, that you and your wife are ordained ministers. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, and helps so, and, and all of these influences come together that led you to write this book that we're going to talk about today, in which you ask people in the faith community to think about the past and about how white churches may have participated in and benefited from practices that hurt black neighborhoods and the people who lived in those neighborhoods. That's a big ask. And, and it may be one that is, as we said at the very beginning, not well received <laughs> by some. So does that concern you at all as, as, a, as a person who has to go out into the community and as a minister? Uh, no, it doesn't concern me. I, I think this is part of the important work uh, that is simply ours to do. Um, we have a, a past that's been, that's been handed to us. It is our inheritance, and it comes with uh, uh, responsibilities. 
Uh, and so for us to be faithful uh, and, and as a minister to be faithful to the gospel, then uh, part of the work we have to do is to examine how we got in the positions that we're in and then to do our best uh, from those positions to, to work for justice. There are a whole bunch of people in the country who don't feel that way, who feel threatened by this history, who don't want to hear about it. They want to protect their children from it. They don't necessarily believe it. Uh, we have, I think, uh, uh, several major candidates who have had things to say about slavery that make your head turn. Uh, why is this easier for you to approach than them? Um, I'm not sure that it's easier necessarily for me, but um, it so it matters that uh, it matters because uh, us playing pretend around our history hurts our city. Uh, it hurts our nation and it hurts us individually. Um, so there's a cost to that playing pretend that um, it's costly to white people's souls. Uh, it makes us less human. It's also costly uh, in a material fashion to our cities uh, and especially to to black neighbors who have uh, had to live through the sort of the blunt end of our various instruments, had their their entire neighborhoods removed by bulldozers. You tell a very complicated story that involves uh, neighborhoods and people to families. You trace them back to uh, uh, the Civil War and, and in some cases, pre-Civil War era. You talk about urban renewal, which was a program that we will explain for those who are too young to remember it a little bit later on. You talk about the destructive nature of that, even though many people, I would say most people at the time, looked at that as a positive uh, because they well, there were many reasons for that, which we'll get into. Uh, but it, in your book, at least, which I said reads like a novel, it all kinds of comes together in Chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9, uh, you point to a, a one-page article that appeared in the October 1965 issue of a Baptist Program magazine headlined, Churches Can Profit from Urban Renewal. It is evidence that white churches could and did profit from the misfortune of black communities forced into urban renewal by governments they did not control. So right. through today's eyes, we condemn those who engaged in the practice of enslaving others in the 18th century because, uh, because they did it and they saw nothing wrong with it. We, we condemn them for that. Perhaps that's the wrong thing to do, but that's what we do. Is this an extension of the same thing, urban renewal? They they did this. They saw nothing wrong with it. Should that be condemned? Absolutely, it should be. Uh, urban renewal is what the writer Christina Sharp calls one of slavery's afterlives. Uh, it is it is a, along the same trajectory um, and dominated by white people and institutions who profited from the destruction of. Um, especially black neighborhoods all around the country. Urban renewal didn't just happen here in Charlotte. It happened in more than 260 cities. Um, and so part of the argument that I'm making in the book is that there's a theological basis that helped to inform urban renewal. And bad theology creates bad policy. And that's what the book is exploring. You spent six years studying churches and studying urban renewal. What led you to do that research in the first place, and how, how long did it take you to make the connection you just talked about? Uh, so, I, well, I'm still making connections uh, now, yeah. even after the book has been published. But, um, you know, I think the, the basic thing for me, uh, having always been 
interested in places and, and maps is that a, a map is a theological and a political document. It's not just about geography. Maps also help us to understand the places that we live in and what we believe about them. And at the center of our map uh, in downtown Charlotte is what was a formerly black neighborhood called Brooklyn. And now in a key spot in that stands the government center right next to First Baptist Church, a very visible symbol of the fusion of theological and political power right there marked onto our map. So this book originated with me trying to understand and give words to how has that fusion of theological and political power um, informed the life of our city? So I guess my, uh, to re-paraphrase or re- rephrase the question I just asked, I guess the question is, did you see these uh, parallels or these th- th- this commingling of church and state, so to speak, with urban renewal before you started the research? And that's why you, that's why you uh, delved into this. Or did you find it out as you did the research? Yeah, so I think it was a little of both. As, a, as an ordained minister, as a theologian, and someone with theological education, I, I was kind of primed to see that uh, churches had a, and church members had a particular role in the development of cities. Um, but I, I, don't, I didn't understand the depth of the entanglement until I started doing the research. And so for me, that research was um, in the city's archives, um, the, the Redevelopment Commission archives that are held at UNC Charlotte. It was in the archives at First Baptist Church and at Myers Park Baptist Church and at Friendship Baptist, Friendship Missionary Baptist up on Beatty's Ford, uh, and at, in the archives of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, so lots of different places really helped to deepen that understanding of this entanglement of political and theological power. Let's talk about urban renewal, because there are a whole bunch of people who did not live through it. I did. Uh, and I have to be honest, uh, as these urban renewal projects were taking, I grew up in the D.C. area, and as they were taking place in that area, we all thought this is a good thing because they're, they're bulldozing slums and they're going to improve those neighborhoods. What we didn't realize, of course, at the time, or at least I was too young to realize, is that the people who lived in those uh, places were uh, economically distressed and probably had very few other options. And, in, and as, as we will discuss much of that was codified uh, with redlining and other uh, things that, that worked against them. So for those who are not old enough to remember it, didn't live through it, remind people exactly what urban renewal was. So urban renewal was uh, a federal program established by the Housing Act of 1949 and then again the Housing Act of 1954. Uh, what it did was it offered federal money for cities to identify neighborhoods for um, what they called slum clearance. And so part of the the important movement that happens here is immediately cities begin to try to put words to what's a slum and what's not. Um, Inevitably, because of the racial history of the United States, because of uh, white supremacy, then white folks in charge thought that black neighborhoods were slums regardless of the actual material conditions of those neighborhoods. And, and there was a reason why those neighborhoods were in the condition they were in. It was, and it was not just because the people living there were economically distressed. It was because the owners, who were primarily white, kept them that way. 
Yeah, that's right. So the so what urban renewal would, did not do was address the reason that some neighborhoods were experiencing significant distress. Right? Instead, it just tore the neighborhoods down and moved the distress around uh, within cities. And so it was a program that didn't didn't solve the issue that it on the surface at least set out to try to solve. And you say that many activists today look back on urban renewal and view it as the foundation of the housing crisis this country is now experiencing. Uh, are you in that camp? And tell me how it is the foundation of what we're going through today. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not sure that it's exactly the foundation, but it is certainly one of the significant pieces. Um, and so with urban renewal in Charlotte, for instance, there were there were five large neighborhoods that were totally wiped out. Not, so not just Brooklyn or, or Second Ward, but also First Ward, Third Ward, the Greenville neighborhood, and portions of Dilworth. So we wiped out uh, thousands and thousands of housing units with an explicit uh, commitment by Mayor Brookshire not to build new housing, instead just to say the market will absorb this. Um, and, and so we've not had significant, sustained efforts to correct those mistakes from the past uh, over the course of, of 50 or 60 years now. And as I said, many of us, and when I say us, uh, I grew up in a white family, so we didn't see the things that the black families saw, whether they lived in those neighborhoods or not. But you quote President Harry Truman as saying that urban renewal was intended to provide, quote, a decent home and a suitable living environment for every American family. Sounds great. Uh, those are areas, uh, there were areas around the country and cities around the country where in which the conditions were deplorable, even third world, and these federal funds were put to use to rid us of those things. But the problem was uh, they didn't think about the replacement. And when we come back, we'll talk about what, 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 what happened as a result of that. And uh, we'll talk about uh, whether this was intentional, at least on some people's parts. Did they do this with bad intentions? We have to take a break. Greg Gerald is our guest. His book is called Our Trespasses. We're coming right back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded, 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Our guest today is Greg Gerald. He's a Charlottean. He's a minister. He is an organizer with the QC Family Tree in Enderly Park, but he's also a writer and a darn, darn good one. His book is called Our Trespasses, White Churches and the Taking of American Neighborhoods. It focuses on Charlotte. It traces the experience and uh, with urban renewal and, and other forms of uh, of. I guess racism is the word, uh, with two families down through time here in Charlotte and really focuses on Second Ward, which was the home of Brooklyn, the Brooklyn neighborhood, which we'll talk about in a moment. It was raised because of urban renewal, which was going on around the country. And as I said, President Harry Truman said it was uh, the aim was to provide a decent home and suitable living environment for every American family which sounds great on the surface, and a lot of these areas around the country were regarded as slums, and we were doing the people who lived there a favor and the cities in which they were a favor by ridding ourselves of these. But what we didn't consider, I think, is that a lot of the people who lived there saw these, and, and in fact they were binding forces for good 
among the people who lived there. These were communities. These were closely knit neighborhoods, and Brooklyn is a good example of that. So did the mistakes that we made by pursuing this policy, was it for good intentions, or did some of the actors know what they were doing, know that they were destroying the fabric of a, of a society within these neighborhoods? Um, so there's uh, folks knew that they were destroying neighborhoods. Um, the, the question for me is not whether they knew it, um, though whether you knew it or not, you're still responsible for the consequences of your actions. Um, but whether they knew it or not, uh, churches, and thinking theologically about this, had prepared those people who drove the bulldozers, who, uh, who created the planning documents, who passed the laws, to think about um, Black neighborhoods and, in a certain way. So there's a key moment in the book where at First Baptist Church, as they're voting to move over into the Brooklyn neighborhood that has been raised, they sing a hymn. And the hymn ends uh, with this line. It says, the crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. So when you're working with that kind of theological material, then you, te you tend not to think too much about um, whose land you're taking over. Uh, who's suffering because of the decisions that you're making. Uh, theologically, you've been primed to think that that's not a very important issue. Historically, religion has been used for those purposes. I think Manifest Destiny has its roots in that. Uh, American exceptionalism has its roots in that. The, the right. fact that uh, divine right of kings has its roots in that. Why do we keep reading and make the, 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 the why do we keep reading the religious texts that way and making the same mistake over and over again? Well, so part of you know uh, part of the insight that that I hope folks will find is that not everybody has, uh, reads religious texts that's what, that way, right? Inside the Brooklyn neighborhood, they weren't reading texts that way. They weren't singing those songs. Um, they were singing different songs, and they were reading texts very differently. And so, part of the work that white churches in particular have to do is to be, um, to develop a new set of resources, to develop new songs to sing, new ways of reading scripture, uh, new ways that can allow us to engage in human and just and kind ways uh, inside our neighborhoods, inside our cities, in the, in the work that we have to do in the world. We don't do that today. Yeah, you, know, you, can sure. look at, you can look at our politics and the political language being used and, and some of the things that are being suggested that we do, particularly with immigrants, etc. And it's a kind of a mean-spirited approach, many would say. Yeah, yeah. So, but there are some people, uh, there are some people who are learning kindness, who are using the stories of faith to, uh, to do remarkable work that looks like justice, that looks like um, that looks like fairness, that looks like uh, making repairs for the damages that we've done in the past. So the, the story is not simply one thing or the other. So let's talk about Brooklyn. Uh, for those who are new to town, who don't know where Brooklyn was, it is Second Ward. The city downtown is divided into four wards. Second Ward is, the, I guess, the southeastern uh, right. quadrant. Uh, and it was it stood uh, it was bordered by East Trade Street, South Brevard, what is now the John Belk Freeway, and what was then East Moorhead Street, almost to South Kings Drive. Describe the Brooklyn neighborhood when it existed. Sure. So um, from after the Civil War um, until uh, 1960 or so, when urban renewal projects started, um, so the Second Ward was 
ex almost exclusively uh, a black neighborhood. You would have found inside that uh, what some residents there would have called like a city within a city, a place that uh, a place where, as folks described to me, you could be born, you could go to school there, you could go to the doctor, you get trained for a job, you'd get your first job, you could get married, you go to church, uh, you know, you do everything that it takes to make a life. And then when you die, you could have your body prepared for burial there. So all that happening inside Second Ward. So a place that you might you might describe as um, kind of living inside some contradictions. On the one hand, this really rich and vibrant culture that existed on the inside, but on the other hand, living under the iron claws of Jim Crow that made it hard for money in particular and resources to get in and out of the neighborhood. Um, so everything that happened had to circulate within the inside there. We should, we've talked about this before when we've had historians on the program, that prior well, at the end of the Civil War and prior to the end of Reconstruction, Charlotte was fairly integrated. People of all socioeconomic uh, of, uh, conditions lived side by side, blacks and whites, rich and poor, on the same street, in the same block, next door to each other, and we had no problem with this until the end of Reconstruction when white supremacists wanted their power back, and that is mm -hmm. when segregation began, and that is when neighborhoods like Brooklyn began to form. It was a community, but it was also, in the end, substandard, as you admit in your book. You say, quote, overcrowded conditions were part of the popular narrative of distress regarding black, immigrant, and poor white neighborhoods. Profit motives and few minimum housing codes meant that maintaining low-quality housing was in the best interest of landlords, even as segregation laws limited the supply of housing to black residents elsewhere. Consequently, you say, poor people of every race frequently paid too much rent for homes that were too small or in bad condition or were built more densely than the infrastructure could support. And in Brooklyn, those problem problems were especially acute. But you also say that clearance was not the solution to the inequities. It was their reinvention. Why didn't we take that route? Uh, well, we didn't take that route because uh, low-income housing, um, and there was lots of it in Brooklyn, there, Brooklyn was not only that, right? Brooklyn had a, a, a variety of class representations there, some really solid housing and businesses as well. But uh, as a whole, low-income housing is built on exploitation. Uh, it's built on um, people who have very few options, and so they wind up overpaying for uh, poor quality housing. So the, the profit margins can be relatively high. Uh, so for those people in charge who were exploitative landlords, and there were lots of them in the Brooklyn neighborhood, uh, they, they got bought out and they simply reinvested that money elsewhere. They recreated the same set of conditions in other neighborhoods. So urban renewal, as it was constituted, was never gonna solve the problem of exploitation in the housing market. Instead, it was simply going to dis, uh, re displace it to other places. At the time of urban renewal, when they began bulldozing these homes and destroying that neighborhood in the early 1960s, there were about 1,000 people who lived there, I believe. About 1,000 families. Fa so okay. several, thousand, thousand so, several thousand people. What happened to those people? Where did they go? Uh, well, the city policy for uh, most of that time was um, that they just went wherever they could find. And so uh, many of them moved to, towards West Charlotte. 
uh, often wound, winding up in overcrowded spaces in other neighborhoods. Um, at some point, the federal government began to demand um, that we build new housing to help replace some of what was being displaced. And so um, some new public housing projects became available beginning in the late 60s that folks started to move to. We are on the air with uh, Greg Gerald, who is uh, the author of Our Trespasses, White Churches and the Taking of American Neighborhoods. He's a charlatan. The book is about Charlotte. It is about the Brooklyn neighborhood, uh, the succumbing to the bulldozers and the benefit that uh, others in the white community had from that. Among them, uh, First Baptist Church. Uh, they just happened to be uh, where uh, the house of at least one of the people you write about in this book stood for a long, long time. And it's also about, the book is also about, as we've said, the, the confluence of, of uh, state policy and, and churches benefiting from this. And First Baptist is a good example of that because the only things surrounding it are government buildings. But for, it should be pointed out, Greg, that First Baptist cooperated with you in your research in this. They didn't push you out the door and say, go away. They, they cooperated with you. Uh, yeah, First Baptist did cooperate. Uh, the, past, the former pastor there, Robert Welch, was uh, quite kind in opening up their archives to me uh, and making a number of people available for interviews. And so I'm really grateful for their participation in the production of the book. Um, but, Mike, a, a book is is uh, not justice. A book is, is just a, a set of documentation. And so the hard work uh, for First Baptist Church um, begins now uh, in taking this story that they don't know and, um, and haven't learned and have forgotten in some ways intentionally and beginning to work on uh, what, they, what they do but because they're sitting on ill-gotten gains. Um, that's not only the story of First Baptist Church. I wrote this because that's the story of so many of our white congregations. Yeah. But it certainly is the story at First Baptist. I, I want to get back to something you were alluding to and, and talked a little bit about earlier in our conversation before we have the technical snafu that we have yeah. just lived through. Uh, and, and that is the, uh, the bad theology and some of the words being used to present some of this. Uh, Urban renewal, you say, had a theological and, and theological politics that informed both the public and private processes and the results. Uh, even the program's name, you say, had theological echoes, renewal, revival, regeneration, resurrection, restoration, rebirth. Were people then even subliminally aware of that connection, do you think? Yeah, uh, yes, it, this certainly had uh, this this whole program had kind of a missionary zeal to it. Uh, we're going we're gonna to solve the problems of these neighborhoods and of our cities by, um, by doing this thing that will restore them to their former glory. So it certainly had a, had a theological character, and you can see it come through in some of the stories. So um, the Redevelopment Commission director here was named Vernon Sawyer, a white man who grew up in eastern North Carolina. And on a Sunday in November of 1960, he shows up at Friendship Baptist Church, the most prominent black church in Charlotte, stood at the corner of First and Brevard, where the NASCAR Hall of Fame is now. And uh, they didn't know he was coming that morning, um, and they didn't know that the Redevelopment Commission was going to take their building and destroy it. And so, 
this is another example of how well you've written this book. It reads like a novel, and you write as as Vernon uh, Sawyer walks up the stairs to the front door of uh, Friendship Baptist. They don't know he's coming. The uh, the deacon, the usher, opens the door, is beyond surprised to see a white man standing there. He ushers him in, hands shakes his hand, welcomes him to Friendship Baptist because that's what you you do. And then he just walks and, and commandeers the pulpit to make this announcement. That's right. And he brought a he brought a photographer and a journalist along from the Charlotte Observer. And so you can see a picture of this moment happening mm. at Friendship in the book. Um, and what, what Sawyer says to them is, he says, the hour is getting late for you to decide the plans that you're going to make for your church. Uh, he tells them, we're coming to take it and we're going to tear it down. And they did not know. And, and this is a sun, this is during a Sunday morning worship service. And then, and this is the theological part. He says to them, "I want you to consider that somewhere in the vast expanse of time, it is you who have been chosen to help lead the city at this crucial hour." So that that, that word chosen—that's theological talk, right? You're the chosen people here, and what you've been chosen for is this immense suffering, not of your own doing, not that you would not choose for yourself, uh, but we're going to come and we're going to take your neighborhood, we're going to take your beloved church building, and we've chosen you. You're the ones that have been chosen. Was it a way to couch it in in comforting terms, theological terms, because it's kind of biblical the way the word chosen is used in that context, or was it to exhibit their the complete hegemony of white of the white power structure over black people? So that um, I think it, he may have meant it to be comforting, but what he was actually doing was demonstrating hegemony there, which is a fancy way of saying domination, right? Um, so what he thought was comforting was really a way of asserting that what the government is doing has a divine blessing to it, and we're going to show you that the power of God through these bulldozers. So that's the, another word, along with all the other words I mentioned, uh, renewal, revival, regeneration, resurrection, restoration, rebirth. Now we have the word chosen, and I, I left a word out, and, the, and that word that I left out is redemption. Uh, and that's a Christian word, and it was one that was used by whites to uh, turn back every amount of progress made by black people uh, in the restoration, or in the rest, in the reconstruction, rather, the reconstruction of the 19th period, yeah. century. And in fact, redemption was the name of the movement that we now think of as white supremacy. Uh, talk about that, because we're in the middle of this yet again. Yeah, that's right. So uh, bad theology creates bad policy. Um, the bad theology of the of the Reconstruction era of, and the post-Reconstruction era gave itself the name um, redemption, and it resulted in the horrific policies of Jim Crow. The bad theology around the urban renewal movement uh, created these these awful policies that destroyed neighborhoods. Um, and you're right; this is a consistent battle that we fight. So. Uh, you can see it in, in very small ways. You can see it in the city council meeting this past week uh, where we've uh, recriminalized certain uh, policies that are most likely to affect our homeless community. Um, the mistake that those homeless people have made is not owning land, not having a place to call their own. And now they're subject to arrest um, despite the fact that we lack basic public infrastructure like public toilets. 
around the city. You can also see this writ large in the ways that um, what folks are calling white Christian nationalism looks very much like the redemption movement of the 1860s and 70s, looks very much like the the work against the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. But in this case, in the case you just cited that happened this week, the recriminalization of certain personal behaviors that are, are engaged in because of homelessness and because of a lack of public infrastructure to support things like human needs, like needing to go to the bathroom, the council voted seven to three in favor of recriminalization. The council is predominantly African-American. Explain That's it. That's true. Uh, so, you know, um, these political decisions are, are complex. They don't always fall neatly along racial lines. But you can, through the course of history, trace some common threads. Uh, And among those common threads is that people who do not own land in a society that values owning land above all else get treated uh, far worse than those who do. Um, You can also see that our society fails for our poorest residents to provide the basic infrastructure that we need um, for the thriving of all of us. And part of my argument within this work is simply to say that all those debts of history are are still accumulating, uh, and and we'll see them continue to accumulate with the decisions that the city council has made this week. These won't go away until we get at the root issues. We have to talk about uh, the, the the two families and the and the progenitors of those families that you uh, highlight yeah. in this book. Yeah. Uh, you decided to use two people, Abram North and Samuel Smith, and their descendants as a way of looking at the impact of Charlotte's Brush with urban renewal. Who were they? So Abram North, um, born in, on a plantation near Walterboro, South Carolina, that kind of rice-growing area there uh, between Walterboro and Charleston, uh, married a Charlotte native named Annie Carson, who was born enslaved uh, near the corner of Brooklyn Village Avenue and South Tryon Street in the home of James Carson. Um, They became remarkable political, cultural, religious figures uh, within Charlotte during the 1860s up through the 1920s. Um, Annie was one of the founders of Clinton Chapel AME Zion, the oldest black church in Mecklenburg County. Abram was an organizer within the fusion movement that in the late 1890s helped to, to bring progressive policy to the state of North Carolina. Uh, one of the local organizers here. Uh, They were among the early homeowners in the Brooklyn neighborhood. They uh, bought a house or bought a lot and then built a house at 625 East 2nd Street. So the the big collision of this book is that uh, Abram, immediately after the Civil War, lived on the property of Sam Smith, who who owned the property of First Baptist Church. a century later, when the urban renewal, when the Redevelopment Commission comes along, it's Abram's daughter, Hazeline, who is the first black homeowner who's forced to sell her property to the city. And First Baptist Church build, uh, built their sanctuary that they opened in 1972 on top of the former North Home. So the book follows the century-long entanglement between the North and First Baptist Church. 
And interestingly enough, I believe that Abram North was enslaved by a Methodist minister. If That's I'm right. Not, yeah. Uh, in the foreword to your book, Dr. Shaniqua uh, Walker Barnes writes that you use the North family in a unique way. You don't erase them, but you tell their story, quote, across generations, showing us how, how racism continues to impact descendants of American chattel slavery, Jim Crow, and urban renewal, and point to the deeper, more complex work that is required for white Christians to truly be anti-racist. Was there something special about these two people? I mean, could you have picked two other families that uh, lived in Brooklyn uh, for a long period of time and told a, a similar story, or is this something that really is? They, they are the people that this story needs to be told through. Uh, well, they, so the you know, the institution of First Baptist Church is part of the way that this story has to be told um, because of the significant theological and cultural heft of that congregation. Um, but the North family was really key um, for a variety of reasons. One, because Abram used to write into the newspaper, um, to a variety of newspapers, the Charlotte Observer, the AME Zion paper, um, the Charlotte News. And so his words got left behind in the archive. That made it a little easier. Um, some, sometimes documentation of, of black families in, in this era can be hard to find. And so that made it easier to track that family. Um, but that family has an important legacy that still lives today in, um, the, in the descendants of that family. So um, Brandy North Williams is a remarkable activist who does really strong work in our city. She's a descendant of that of that family. Tiffany North uh, does, has a remarkable catering business and and a beautiful family. She's a descendant of that family, and so it's, it was important for me to say, like, here's a story that continues. It hasn't stopped. This is not history. We're still living inside the history. But First Baptist Church sits on fifty lots as they were constructed in the in the Brooklyn neighborhood. So there are 49 other families of deeply important stories that also need to be tracked. I think that's part of the work that First Baptist Church needs to do. There may be some who would argue that uh, that uh, Friendship Baptist, which was, as you say, where the NASCAR Hall of Fame is now, rose from the ashes of being told you have to get out because we're taking your church and we're going to bulldoze it. Because the new complex for Friendship Baptist out on Vadis Ford is enormous and mm-hmm. beautiful and a community resource for black people and white people alike. We've done a lot of events there for WFAE. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the argument against that? They, 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 they came out of this okay. Uh, well, so uh, they came out of this um, by the hard struggle mm-hmm. of faith to a remarkable place. And uh, I think you might, I was a member of Friendship for about 10 years, um, just disclosure. I think at Friendship, the language is that they would say that God has been faithful to them despite the struggles that were presented to them. Um, so they've, they've done that in spite of the history. Um, at First Baptist Church, where they're sitting on a, um, by, the, by sort of the private market or by the by the real estate market value, $100 million worth of land. Um, they've done that because of the history, not in spite of it. And so those are, those are two very different ways of getting to, to today. We talk about wealth building, and the one way 
pe- most people build wealth in their families is through real estate, their home that they live in and the way they buy it. You have a chart in your book that shows the purchase price of the land on which First Baptist Church now sits. In 1965, it was bought by the church for uh, $4.25 million in 2023 dollars. Uh, it has since appreciated 930% to $40 million in 2023 dollars. Meanwhile, the North family sold their home in 1961 on East 2nd Street because they had to for below market rate, $6,300, which would be $64,000 in today's dollars, bought a home on Oakland Avenue that same year for the equivalent of $66,000. Okay, well, that all sounds all right. That, but that house recently appraised for $106,000. The property they had to sell would have been worth a lot more money, a half million dollars today. So they lost almost a half a million dollars in wealth. That's right. That's right. Uh, and so, so there is um, there's the basis for the beginnings of repairing this damage. Um, we can it, it, some things can be calculated. Not everything can be calculated. Um, the immense loss, the loss of community, the sort of corporate values that were there. Uh, you can't compensate people for that, but you can, in very crude real estate values, say your family lost significantly. And not only that, other institutions profited significantly, have years and years of accumulated advantage because of bad theology turning into bad policy. So that gives us the basis to say, hey, let's fix this. Let's at least do what we can to offer some corrective measures. Um, The wealth gap today, Mike, is not any different than it was in 1960 when this when urban renewal started. So uh, part of the work that repair can do is to say, um, this story could have been different. Let's do something to make it different now. I have about a minute left. The book is entitled Our Trespasses, and in the Lord's Prayer, Christians ask the Lord to forgive them their trespasses. How can forgiveness come from what, what you write about? Uh, the Christian testimony says, that um, forgiveness comes from repentance, and repentance requires penance, which is actively working against the thing that you did that was wrong. So um, to make ourselves worthy of forgiveness um, for our trespasses, then we're going to have to do the kind of work that will help to repair the scars that we have left upon the cityscape. Are we prepared to do that? I have 30 seconds. Are we prepared to do that, do you think? You know, uh, people do remarkable things uh, along the stories of faith. Um, They'll make all kinds of sacrifices when they're convinced that it's the right thing to do. And so, uh, you know, I think there's reason to be hopeful, but there's lots of work to do. And this book may help people. Uh, see this as the right thing to do. It's called Our Trespasses, White Churches, and the Taking of American Neighborhoods. It is all based in Charlotte. It reads like a novel, and it is uh, it makes you think hard. Greg Gerald is its author. He's our guest. Thank you for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. 
For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.